My name is Jenji Kovac. I'm the ERCO professor in humanitarian logistics at the Hanke School of Economics, which is a university in Helsinki, Finland. Welcome to Logistics Rocks. Thank you. And uh, could you tell me a little bit more about humanitarian logistics? I can bore you to death in, about humanitarian logistics if you want to. Um, but yes, in a nutshell, what we deal with in humanitarian logistics is any kind of disaster or development aid where we try to bring relief or aid to beneficiaries. Okay, so it's it's uh, when you have uh, epidemics, earthquakes, tsunamis, th- those kinds of events? It could be those. So it can be natural disasters like the ones you mentioned, uh, as to say earthquakes or tsunamis or whichever. It can also be crises and war zones that we deal with, and we have a number of projects in those right now in conflict zones. Or it can be, of course, pandemics. Those are kind of maybe the three biggest categories. And how do you come to work in this field? I mean, uh, it's quite a specific part of logistics and it's quite new as well. Uh, academic uh, As an academic subject, it's quite new, isn't it? Well, new and new. So compared to logistics overall, of course, it's fairly new. I wouldn't say it's new in the sense that people wouldn't have done it earlier. Uh, it's more that academia has largely ignored it until about 10, 15 years ago. But that's changed quite a lot. And nowadays, it's starting to be quite an established discipline with its own journals and own com- community as well. So it's getting there. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've previously talked to some professionals working within this field at Doctors Without Borders, for instance. And uh, I know that there are uh, quite a lot of people uh, in the world working within what you would like, uh, what you would call humanitarian logistics. And what would you say is transferred over from traditional logistics, supply chain management into this field? I would say humanitarian logistics overall is just another context of logistics. So pretty much every concept that you work with in logistics and supply chain management can be also applied in this context. So it's not in that sense rocket science. It's just, you know, a different area. Now, With that different area, of course, there are some new caveats on contextual differences that one does need to take into account. So, for example, um, access to particular disaster areas can be restricted. Um, There are maybe not exactly the same number of actors and organizations working um, that you're used to. And it's a not-for-profit environment. So these would be some of the bigger issues that are quite different from the typical logistics supply chain management environment that we work with. But you can transfer a lot of your knowledge. Yeah, and when you say not for profit, of course there are companies working within this industry, uh, companies who do quite well as well. Also, when we talk about logistics, we often talk about the other side of the equation, namely cost, resource utilization, things like that. And I suppose those are generic, even to humanitarian logistics. So first of all, yes, you're right. I mean, cost and resource utilization are definitely generic also here. Um, when we talk about costs of logistics here, what we are trying to do is, of course, the same way, trying to reduce costs overall in order to then though translate not necessarily to profits, but to more people one can serve and one can actually reach with the aid. So that's what I mean by a not-for-profit environment. You're also right in saying that It, there is quite an industry behind it. 
the suppliers of any kind of aid are typical, uh, typically companies, but the ones distributing it are then typically humanitarian organizations. And that's where you have the not-for-profit interface. Mm, I understand. And, and um, if you look at some of the projects you have studied, can you give me some examples? What, what have you seen? When doing field work? Well, generally speaking, I mean, our group is pretty much known for research that is hands on and field work oriented. So we've seen probably quite a lot of different things. Um, they range from looking at health programs and uh, harmonizing different kinds of programs delivering health, whether that's now anyway from cholera kids to maternal health to you name it. So it can be very different kinds of aspects of. Um, of what they call health programs. It can also be what we've been working with health and nutrition related projects where we are, have been, for example, working with the Kenyan government and, and the Ministry of Health and a number of humanitarian organizations. They are looking at scaling up and scaling down uh, responses when famines hit. So scalability in the supply chain was one of the things we worked with. It can be pretty much anything. We are doing certification programs for humanitarian organizations, particular trainings for them. We have a big project on tracking and tracing convoys in Syria. It's quite a number of different things. And um, if you look at it, it's it's uh, extremely different because some of them are more sort of preparatory or foundation building work and some of it is more disaster response. And it must be quite a field to cover because it's so so much difference between sort of the day-to-day of uh, preventing, preventing, uh, for instance, certain diseases by working on the ground year after year and uh, responding to a hurricane somewhere. You're right. I mean, it's different in that respect as well, that it's, of course, you go through the whole cycle of preparedness, response, reconstruction. Then there is also in parallel to it, there's development aid and uh, and so forth. So there is that, um, that the phases of disaster relief differ there. Um, the aims differ. From a supply chain management perspective, I think what is probably the most interesting is also how you go from trying to really have a cost focus and maybe even a lean focus to being highly agile in response. Yeah, okay. So so, uh, when you say lean focus, it's of course when you do the day-to-day work and and when you prepare for the unknown unknowns or maybe the known unknowns that you you know things will happen you don't know exactly where you don't know exactly when if if this would have been a company it would have been the logistics manager's worst nightmare of course to prepare for disaster every time but do you see that these professionals that are working in this industry are they recruited from the logistics industry from the the business side or are they educated sort of bred within the humanitarian sector well both, to, <laughs> in that sense. You are, um, when you say that if this were a company, this would be their worst nightmare. Now, I would maybe not quite agree with that, because if you think of a humanitarian organization, this is their bread and butter. So it's preparing for disasters and then delivering aid in disasters that, that matters, which means that on a global level, you do know that X number of disasters will occur annually. There is quite a momentum uh, behind also forecasting the needs for the next year to come across the globe based on also already disasters that have occurred that we already know are existing. For example, conflicts uh, we already know will probably not end the next year that they need to have attention. We know that there is a number of earthquakes every year. There are seasonal floods, there are hurricane seasons and typhoon seasons. So 
you can forecast quite a bit of this. And in that sense, when we talk about unknown unknowns, it's more maybe the exact location and the exact impact and magnitude of a particular event than, than the question, will anything happen in the first place? So globally speaking, if you aggregate all that demand, there is quite an understanding of how much there will be per year. But is it the same organization, the same people responding to all the events? or, or uh, Because when you break it down, it will, of course, be harder to predict on a continent-by-continent basis or a country-by-country basis. And all of those countries need their own response teams and their own professionals in the area. So uh, on a global scale, yes, I can understand. You can predict. Even though we, we, um, some say we will see an increase in, uh, in climate-related disasters uh, because of the likelihood of extreme weather conditions uh, in the future. But um, how easy is it to predict when you go down on a national level? You're right. I mean, there is, of course, a difference between the global, the global scale and the national level. I mean, and, and also climate-related disasters are on the increase. I mean, that's also kind of built into many of these forecasts. On the national level, every country has its own disaster profile. So we would in Finland here have a disaster profile that uh, when it comes to natural disasters, we look at particularly storms and floods. Where I come from, from in Austria, our biggest issue were avalanches, you know, So uh, and of course floods as well. So it really depends a bit on where you are, uh, what you're also dealing with. I wouldn't expect a tsunami in Austria, nor in Finland, to be very honest. So you can a bit take it down to the local level, uh, where it is a bit more tricky to say exactly which organization is going to respond where. So definitely from an organizational perspective, it can be trickier to see what you're going to do next year and, and in which areas. But back to another question that you asked me, like, where do the people human theologists come from? It's quite a mix. So there are those who start off with working in this field directly and basically are bred within this industry in that sense. But there are also the ones who work with, um, with companies. For example, the typical roster of a humanitarian organization in the Nordic countries would be consisting of people who work in a variety of industries in, in different companies and who are called in only whenever a disaster occurs to be sent out to the field. Like volunteers? Well, I wouldn't necessarily call them exactly volunteers. Uh, for To be on a roster of an organization, you have to qualify. You are It's like kind of being a pre-qualified supplier uh, when it comes to it. You also have to undergo certain trainings. But you typically work in a similar environment in a company, and then you're called in. I also don't call them volunteers for the reason that these are usually paid missions. So in order to become a, a, an expert like this, if you, if you want to be one of these people on the roster, would that be coordinated by the local governments? Or, or are there other organizations like international organizations that you can apply for uh, these positions or uh, sort of raise your hand and say, well, I want to be a part of this? Uh, typically, I would say it's more like directly with the humanitarian organizations that one enrolls in a certain roster. So, for example, here in Finland, it would be the Finnish Red Cross or Finchurch Aid that have their specific rosters. Globally speaking, UN organizations might have their volunteer and roster bases as well and so forth. Um, when it comes to governments, that, there it really depends. Yes, there are governments that have a very strong um, focus on this. And there, for example, municipalities would have their own emergency teams 
There are also actually companies that would have the emergency teams. So, for example, um, telecom companies very often have an emergency telecoms team that they can send out. Okay, so so yeah, the, the, I was going to ask you about the telecom industry because they have, of course, they have an existing infrastructure that may be affected by floods or or uh, tsunamis or storms or things like that, and of course they need to be they need to have a repair crew fast on site to fix the mobile phone network, but they also have a role in connecting disaster areas. We're using drones, using new technology to build mesh networks and things like that, and and from what I've read, that's a really booming sector at the moment. Yes, it is. And it has good reasons for that. I mean, if you think of it, one of the first ways to reach out to a community that has been uh, impacted by a disaster would be to see, okay, so what are the needs and, and call even just on the ground. To send out warnings, you often need a telecoms network that is operating. And sadly, that's where you can see that uh, what went wrong in Indonesia is that the telecoms network was knocked out before the warning went out. So you do have quite a lot of, of reliance on these networks. In fact, if you want to look at where the largest needs are after a disaster occurred, now especially when it comes to uh, natural disasters, is when you look at the map and see that there is a black spot in terms of telecoms. So if the network has been knocked out, you pretty much have a good hunch that that's where the largest needs will be. Yeah, of course. It's not necessarily where people shout the loudest, but where you actually don't have any input whatsoever. But it's a similar thing with uh, logistic service providers. They usually have, like the bigger ones in the world, have an emergency team. And they have existing partnerships with humanitarian organizations as well. So they train particular people whom they can send out to disasters as well. Yeah, and if you if you continue the analogy of of business logistics or supply chain management, they of course also have a preparedness for disasters or or for unwanted events or events that that may need some extraordinary response. So, would you say that there are similarities between sort of the non-lethal part of this response mentality to look at at uh, normal businesses, and they can learn from humanitarian logistics? Well, not only can they learn, but they also do learn. So, a number of organizations, or like especially companies, actively encourage their um, their employees to be, for example, on humanitarian rosters, because what they think is that once uh, once their employees go into a disaster area and deliver aid, they also bring back that agility, that responsiveness, that flexibility to their own organization. So there is quite an active part of it in secondments from companies to humanitarian organizations and vice versa, just for this learning aspect. Also, we've had a project with a logistics service provider where the only thing the, that company wanted to get out of it is learning from humanitarians. So it's yeah, it's sending the 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 employees to boot camp well in a way that but also just learning from the structural flexibility if you want to call it that um how to set up a network that can very quickly mobilize and if we look at a third sector if we have the private sector and then we have the humanitarian logistics actor sector and then we have the military sector the defense sector. Would you say that there is also some lessons to be learned from the military or vice versa between humanitarian? Absolutely. I mean, both of them have uh, the very kind of 
they have a large periods of time where they are kind of just preparing for the next disaster and then they have the sudden mobilization for something. So you would definitely have it in both as also in the business sector. I mean, if you think of any supply chain disruption, so at the time of a disruption, that's when you have to start mobilizing or ideally a bit earlier if you have a bit of a warning. And the same goes for the military. I mean, they mobilize for particular action, whether that's peacekeeping or whether that's now war. I mean, of course, it depends on what you're really after there. But there are also crucial differences between the military and the humanitarian sector. So a typical military organization has a lot of manpower, a lot of training and a lot of assets they build up their capacity by just having that capacity and maintaining it. It's an expensive machine, yes. It is, versus the uh, typical humanitarian organization would not have neither uh, the manpower lying around, uh, so to say, nor the assets for it. So they they are kind of much less resource intensive over time. What they rather do is to then bring in that capacity through their network whenever they are mobilized. And of course, uh, I mean, that's fully natural because they are, a lot of them are funded by donations and, and uh, things like that. So, so of course, they don't have the budget that the defense system normally has in countries. So Yeah, they don't. And uh, I don't think they want to have in that sense either. I mean, that's not the idea of a humanitarian organization. Ideally, what you want to do as a humanitarian logistician is to do your job well and then be out of job so that you're not needed anymore. Yeah, that would be ideal. So the, and this is a question I ask everyone. If you're given 10 million euros or 10 million dollars, what would you invest in? I would actually probably invest in um, logistics education, making logistics kind of a way of thinking for people. Not only in the humanitarian organizations, but but uh, elsewhere also? Of course, the humanitarian aspect of it is important. But I, I think um, just generally thinking of how to organize things, how to move materials, whether that's uh, when it's difficult or when, uh, whether that's kind of a, a normal kind of lean flow. That thinking, if people would have it and that awareness, I'm pretty sure the world would be a better place. That's a good answer. And if you look 10 to 15 years into the future and within this area of humanitarian logistics, what what would a typical career or, or task description be for professionals working in the sector? I think compared to what it is now, in 10, 15 years, there will be a number of things that impact on the job profile of humanitarian logisticians. One is to the need to understand the existing markets and the existing supply chains in any region, both for the purpose to be able to procure more locally. And that's the whole localization aspect of it is quite a trend in this area, but also to be able to really evaluate when to bring materials and items to uh, people and when to deliver cash. So this whole cash programming and cash and voucher systems uh, aspect of humanitarian logistics is very much on the rise. We are, we are uh, abolishing cash in Sweden, almost, uh, and it, it's a very fast development. We are going over to mobile payments. Well, by, when I'm talking about cash and voucher systems, I don't talk about cash, cash. It could be mobile payments. It could be any kind of financial mechanisms that enable people to buy their own items instead of you bringing it to them. So, so to establish a, a temporary market. Yes. I mean, it's a big trend uh, for various reasons. One is if you have items available in the local market, even after a disaster, then it is typically more appropriate what is in the local market for the local 
people to, to buy, it's familiar to, uh, and it's culturally appropriate, etc. Plus, the biggest issue is that, of course, beneficiaries, if they get cash, they can make their own choices of what is the highest priority to what they want to have. On the other hand, also, ideally... Uh, when delivering cash, it would mean that you are not setting up a parallel supply chain to what already exists somewhere and you don't have to transport things around the globe. So in an ideal world, that means that you are uh, actually being able to deliver more for less money, in fact. However, of course, it's not always possible to do so. I mean, if if you don't have something in a market to begin with, you can't bring in cash because nobody can buy anything. And it's quite a difficult issue to balance it with issues such as inflation, with issues such as like availability uh, in the longer run and so forth. So that understanding of how a particular market works, what is available, what is accessible by by beneficiary groups, that is a very difficult one. And that's somehow a holy grail right now for humanitarian logisticians. Yeah, I can understand that. And what's your best advice to someone starting out in humanitarian logistics on the professional side? I'd say probably two main things. One is to actually just work in logistics. It helps a lot to really know that field uh, to begin with. And to start volunteering with neighborhood organizations, any of the organizations around. That way one gets quite a good understanding of what is really needed. And then obviously, at some point, um, getting into the rosters of the humanitarian organizations, starting those trainings and the missions that will help. It sounds really interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit tempted, actually, uh, to do something. But I, I'm not really sure what, though. But uh, yeah, we'll look into it. And I have to ask you about your favorite rock song, of course. I don't really have a favorite rock song. But if I have to go for one, it would be Road Music by Plane Ride. Excellent choice. Thank you. We will definitely add that to our playlist, uh, of course. And my final question, who would you like me to interview in Logistics Rocks? When it comes to now humanitarian logistics, maybe Karl Lelövi from the Finnish Red Cross. He is quite a capacity in this field. Thank you very much, Tenji. And it's been very nice having you here in Logistics Rocks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Junji. That was really insightful. And I learned a lot during our talk about how you can approach humanitarian logistics from a research perspective and how you can systemize knowledge and then disseminate this knowledge to the ones who need it the most. Next up is one of those who need this knowledge. And that's Johanna Linder. She is a logistician working within Doctors Without Borders. She has done many things uh, within this organization. Among other things, she's been the person on the ground during the Ebola outbreak in 2015 in Liberia, where she was the supply chain manager on site, which of course is a really difficult situation, uh, as you might imagine. And she will also tell us a bit about this during the interview. Now Johanna is working from Brussels, where she orchestrates several different actions uh, within Doctors Without Borders. So stay tuned and load up the next episode to listen to and learn from Johanna Linder.